So even an average preacher never forgets an above average introduction. God gave me this introduction 30 years ago. Bible Study Fellowship, some of you may have heard of it. I was preaching to about 300 guys, two or 300 guys, um, on the book of Esther. You may recall some of the escapades of Mordecai and Esther. And as I studied that great book, a question kept bubbling up in my mind, which is the same one that bubbled up in my mind as I began to study Psalm 27. So I'll just ask you, do you think or do you feel like you're a lucky person? Do you feel like you're a lucky person? <laughs> I hope not, okay? Um, I think I, some of you have heard me share this before, but I thought it'd be a good idea to look up the word luck. So I did. This is what it says. The chance happening of fortunate events. Okay? I thought of fortuitous. It means a happening by chance. So I thought of serendipitous. Uh, accidental fortunate chance occurrence. So I looked up accident, an event occurring by chance. So I'm back to chance. I looked up chance. Abstract nature of unexpected, unpredictable, random events. So I looked up random. Having no specific pattern or objective. Haphazard. I looked up haphazard. Characterized by mere chance. I thought of coincidence. Looked it up. A state or fact of coinciding. I thought of the word fluke. Fluke means a stroke of good luck. So I went full circle. I still don't know what luck is. So I'll cut to the chase. Luck is nothing, right? Luck is nothing. It is, these definitions are hopelessly cryptic. They're vague. They're obscure. They're unclear. Luck is nothing except man's confession of ignorance about what he cannot perceive or understand. Chance is nothing. It's a confession of ignorance. Okay, so if I flip this coin, is it chance? Is it chance if it comes up heads or tails? Is it chance or is it just physics, right? It's not chance. It's in the physics. It's just that you and I don't have the ability to perceive all of the physics. I made a list of them. It's like where the coin starts, where I release it, how much energy is applied, what's the mass of the coin, the aerodynamics of the coin, when I release the point, what release point and catch point I have. It's all in the physics. But people call it chance. It's not chance. Oh, by the way, there is no chance in a sovereign God's universe. There is no chance. Luck is nothing. Chance is nothing. A confession of ignorance is all that it is. So if you're biblically literate, you need to expunge that word from your vocabulary. You do not need this word. You should never let an unbeliever hear you use this word. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, we don't believe in luck. We don't need luck. Okay? Don't ever use this word in such a way that an unbeliever could hear you. Again, it's simply a confession of ignorance. Was Adam, uh, pardon me, was Abraham and Sarah lucky in conceiving Isaac? Was Joseph lucky in his rise to power? Was Moses, Moses lucky 
that Pharaoh decided to let the Jews go? Was Joshua lucky in taking the promised land? Was David lucky with his slingshot? You know the answer, right? You have a sovereign God who rules and reigns. No such thing as luck. They were not the beneficiaries of fortuitous chance, random events. They were in the hand of El Shaddai. Who knows what El Shaddai means? You should know this name for God. What does El Shaddai mean? Almighty. Almighty. I tell you, it, I tell you often, and it's true, there's no such thing as one rogue molecule. Now, this great high sovereignty of God is something that has been lost in much of the modern church. If you're in very many churches these days, you hear kind of a pathetic God preach. Well, he's frustrated. Man is frustrating God. Satan is frustrating God. The demons are frustrating God. He's frustrated. Hey, if you ever hear anybody preaching that, you should run for the door because that preacher doesn't know God. Yahweh is not frustrated. He is working all of his good pleasure in heaven and in earth. He does whatever he pleases. You guys know some of the text. I'm going to read you just a few verses from Isaiah. God says, I declare the end from the beginning. My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. My words shall not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For surely as I have intended, so it shall happen. Just as I have planned, so it will stand. Who can turn back the outstretched hand of Yahweh? There's two words that I emphasized when I read the psalm to you. Confidence, and what was the other one? Courage. <laughs> you know why? We can be outrageous in our confidence. You know why? We can be courageous. Every day we get out of bed, we can be courageous. Because Yahweh reigns. Yahweh reigns, right? He reigns. There's not one rogue molecule in the universe. He sovereignly rules over all things, anything, everything, from the courses of the galaxies in the cosmos to the electrons orbiting the nucleus of the single atom. He's sovereign. In amoebas to asteroids, bacterium to black holes, snails to supernova, and molecules to man. Jesus said it in a way that the first century Jew could understand it. He said, and not are two sparrows sowed for a cent, but not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of God. Now, there's nothing more insignificant to the first century Jew than a sparrow. There are trillions, countless trillions of sparrows around the world, but not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of God. Jesus couldn't have said it any stronger in the first century. I mean, they didn't know about, they didn't know about uh, neutrons and, you know, billions of galaxies. and They didn't really understand about the inner workings of the cell. We know a lot more. But Jesus said it in such a way that there would be no misunderstanding. He's saying God is sovereign. And then do you remember what he said after that? You've got to remember this. Then he said what? Therefore, fear not. Right? Therefore, back to Psalm 27, you can be confident and you can be courageous. 
My Father is sovereign. I love that. So, fear is warranted if God is not sovereign over every last molecule. That, that rogue molecule could destroy everything. Fear is warranted if he's not sovereign. And fear is unwarranted if he is, beloved. We talked a lot about it last week. Fear is unwarranted if we believe what he says about himself. He is the almighty, sovereign God. I love Psalm 97. I preached it some years ago. I remember the title of that, of that sermon that the Lord gave me, Sovereignty and Gladness. Let me, let me just read you an excerpt. Sovereignty and Gladness, right? The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous one. The Lord reigns. Be glad, right? He's talking to his people. The Lord reigns, so what? Be glad. Pandemic. My God reigns in the pandemic. My God reigns. So Psalm 97, I love it. God says, remember that I'm sovereign, which means you should be glad. You're my people. You're my people. You should be glad. Reminds me of Daniel 4.35. God does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stay his hand. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So in our text today, Psalm 27, David's, David's not worried about luck and serendipity and a happy coincidence and fortuitous events. He's not worried about any of it. He's looking at Yahweh, right? He just looks at God. He just looks at God. He doesn't need any of these vacuous concepts. He doesn't believe in coincidence. Okay, if there's anybody in this room that still believes in coincidence, we need to talk. All right? <laughs> we need... We need to talk. So let's get back to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. You can open your Bibles, if you like, and electronic device, because I'm going to actually read through the text again, one verse at a time, one or two verses at a time. Psalm 27, here we go. The Lord is my light and my salvation. In light of this, whom shall I fear, he says. The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? One thing I love about the Psalms is they are personal. Really, the whole Bible is personal, but the Psalms are always personal. It's the unavoidable truth the regenerate man loves and the unregenerate man hates. The humanist, secularist, and materialists, they hate the fact that God is a personal God. The ultimate fact of the universe, as one theologian said, is a personal God. Yes, you will stand before him. He created you. He designed you. He sustained you. And one day you will look him in the eye. It's going to be very personal. If you know him, it's going to be exceedingly personal. If you don't know him, it's going to be extraordinarily personal. 
Do you notice what David says? Tell me what he says. He says, the Lord is the light. No. What does he say? The Lord is the salvation. No, what does he say? The Lord is what? My. He's my salvation. The Lord is my light. This is not abstract. This is not theoretical. He's my light. He's my Savior. And this is Christianity. <laughs> it's always this way. It's always this way. If it's not personal, it's not Christianity. It's religion. David said, he's my light. He is my salvation. I love that. It's extremely personal. It's real. David owns it for himself. My salvation. It's personal. All the Psalms are quite personal. I love it. And it is the consequence of El Shaddai being our light and salvation, right? Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? It's the consequence, right? It's the consequence of understanding He's my God and my Savior. I will not fear anything. I fear no man. I dread no man. I know Yahweh. That's what David is saying. So what he's going to say throughout the, the balance of the psalm, Daniel eleven thirty two, one of my favorite verses, King James Version on this one. The people who know their God, they shall be strong and they shall be explo do exploits. They're, they don't need luck. They don't need luck. Abraham never needed luck. Joshua didn't need any luck. David needs no luck. If you believe this about God, you really can't live small anymore. Psalm 97, the psalmist says, Before whom the earth trembles and the mountains melt like wax. That's our God. If your Christianity is personal, meaning if it is real, you are free to live your life as big as you dare. You are free to live your Christianity as huge as you dare. Ball's in your court. Ball is in your court. If you believe your God reigns <laughs> and you're in His will and you're speaking His word and you're listening to Him in prayer, just go out and live your life, man. Be fearless. You can be confident. And what's the other one? Courageous, right? We can be confident and courageous. Verse 2 and 3. When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and they fell. Oh, I guess that was a coincidence. No, wait a minute. Probably not. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war arise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. So how confident are you out in the world? How confident are you? How confident are you in the hard place? We talked a little bit about this last week. How confident are you? Are you confident in God? 
David is confident before his adversaries. Jesus said it this way, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. This is freedom. This is license. This is liberty to follow Christ wherever he takes us. I love Psalm 56. David says, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. It's what I read to you as we begin the service. Did you notice in Psalm 27, 2, verse 2 there, what happened to his enemies? What, did they, what happened to them? I guess it was just good luck. They stumbled and they fell. It must have just been a coincidence. It was serendipity. It was a stroke of luck. No. David says they stumbled and fell. This is this is, old, this is an Old Testament figure of speech, meaning his enemies were destroyed. His enemies were destroyed. And here's what I want to say to you, beloved. Our enemies are God's enemies, right? No enemy of God gets away with anything. Men get away with nothing. You're either in Christ or you're on your way to eternal damnation. You, men don't get away with one thing. I don't have to take vengeance. I'm not interested in vengeance. In fact, God says, don't take vengeance. He says, love your enemies. Bless your enemies. I'll take care of the vengeance, right? But I want you to understand. David says, my enemies stumbled and fell. I can guarantee it. Every enemy you have will stumble and fall. God will crush them. Because our enemies are the enemies of God. He will crush them. So those of you who been around for a while, you know my mind often goes to King Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Remember the great horde was coming on uh, the Jews, and Joseph, Jehoshaphat was, was uh, greatly exercised, and he was just hoping for some serendipitous deliverance, maybe some good luck. No, that's not right. He cried out to Yahweh, and God said, you remember what God said? I love this account. God said to Jehoshaphat, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours. Oh, guess what? It's mine. It's mine. I'll take care of your enemies, God says. Don't worry about your enemies. Don't dread them. Don't be anxious about it. I'll take care of it. If you encounter your enemies, love them and bless them. I'll take care of the vengeance. This is the New Testament call. I know it's not easy. It's not easy to love your enemy. But actually the text says, by loving them you will what? Heap hot coals upon them, right? God has a purpose in all things. I know loving your enemy is a hard thing, but God has a purpose in it, beloved, for you and for the one who is your adversary. Look at verse 3. David says, His enemy is encamped against him, but he will not fear. He'll be confident. Does anybody remember what uh, Psalm 34 says? Who else encamps around uh, the believer? Who else encamps around the believer? God. The angel of the Lord encamps around the believer. Oh, there, there's enemies encamped around me? So what? Jesus Christ is encamped around me as well. Man, this is freedom. 
This is license. This is joy. This is power, right? To know Yahweh like this. Man, you gotta love, you gotta love Psalm 27. You just have to love it. David doesn't need luck. He doesn't need serendipity. He walks with El Shaddai. God is David's light. God is David's confidence. Verse 4, one thing he says, I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent. He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. What is it that fuels David's extraordinary life? It's worship of El Shaddai. This is why you're an extraordinary mother or an extraordinary father or an extraordinary wife, or husband, or extraordinary employee, right? It's exactly the same for you because all of those functions is just a, it's just a, a venue of worship, right? I obey God in, in every relationship. I'm obeying God in, in, every, in, in every activity that He brings my way. I'm worshiping God in it. Yes, this is worship. This is a very small part of worship. We're supposed to, like, worship 24-7. It's supposed to be a 24-7 kind of thing. Look at, look at the, the text there, verse 4. He says, one thing, one... I think there's a song named One Thing, isn't there, Karen? We should have sang it. One thing, one thing. I want to worship God. One thing. I want to behold his beauty. It's what I want. You know, you guys have been around for a while. <laughs> infinite exuberance. I've never gotten over the, the phrase infinite exuberance. I want to taste infinite exuberance. I think it's in part what David is saying. This is what I want. God. Infinite exuberance. I want to behold the beauty, the infinite exuberance and intellect and beauty, and power, and persona of God. One thing, it's the only thing I ultimately want. If it's real for you, this should be, this should be true. It's ultimately the only thing you want. It's to know Him, and to love Him, and to worship Him. So David meditates on, uh, here, here he, he's, he sees God's house as a safe place, like a strong tower, as he mentions in Psalm 61. In the house of God, he meditates on the beauty of God. Uh, he makes his offerings. He worships with joy. He sings praises. This is 3,000 years ago, but it was the same thing that we were doing back in the redeemed garage, and it's the same thing we're doing in this borrowed facility. The same kinds of things. We're singing. We're bringing an offering, right? We're loving and we're worshiping. Worshiping God. He did it in the tabernacle. The New Testament church does it 
wherever we can find a place to do it. But we're all worshiping for the same root reason. We love God. He's the most fascinating and engaging being in the cosmos. I must know Him more. It's part of the expression here, I think. So our worship is just like David's, right? That is, if it's real. If you love God as David loved God. Do you notice he sings? Nobody sings like Christians. I know we may not always be perfect, especially with me leading. We're not always perfect, but we are sincere, right? We are sincere. We sing to our God, and nobody sings like real Christians. Nobody does. You, you go check the spectrum. Go look at any world religion you want. Nobody sings like Christians sing because it's alive and well, and there's infinite exuberance down in the heart, right? There is infinite exuberance. Give me a, let me just give you a couple of Psalms. Psalm 50, verse 2. God shines in glorious radiance. We are enthralled with the beauty of God. Psalm 26, 8. I love your sanctuary, Lord, the place where your glory shines. Psalm 90, 17. Moses writes, And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. He's enthralled with the beauty of God. And if you know Him, you are as well. If you know Him. I always loved what C.S. Lewis says, that we have this appetite for beauty, particularly the believer. And he says this, we'll be united with the beauty of God. We will pass into it. We will mysteriously receive it into ourselves and become part of it. I think this is his take on John 17, 21 to 22, where it talks about the redeemed being in the Father and in the Son. I don't understand that. But we have a taste for the beauty of God and it will be satisfied. It will be satisfied. That one thing made me think of Martha and Mary. You guys know the story, right? Luke chapter 10, the one thing. Martha was making all the preparations. and Where was Mary? Anybody remember? Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, right? And Martha starts complaining. You know, she's so busy with all of her preparations and she starts complaining. And uh, Jesus said this, Martha, you're worried about so many things. Mary has chosen the good part. It will not be taken from her, right? <laughs> Mary has chosen the one thing that matters. Yes, your preparations, that's good. Hey, put them down. God is here. God is here. Mary realized that God... At least in some way she understood. It was important to sit at the feet of Jesus. Verse 7 through 10. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do uh, not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. David is praying 
to God what God has already promised to his people. David is praying, God, I, I would that you would hear me and graciously answer me. Well, God has already promised to do these things. Why is David praying about this? If you know your Old Testament, you know a little bit about this. The Lord made a beautiful promise over in Ezekiel chapter 36. Listen to what he said. Ezekiel 36, 36, and 37. God says, I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do all that I have said I will do for my people. Then he says this. This also I will let the house of Israel, what? Ask me to do for them. Why is David praying for what God has already promised? Why should you be praying for what God has already promised? It's the design of God that you would be humble before Him and cry out to Him in your impotence, crying out to omnipotence, right? And I shared with you last week, Isaiah 65, 24, one of my favorite verses on prayer. And it came to pass, before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear, God says. Why is David praying what God has already promised? Because it's the will of God that we do so. And David says, verse 8, he says, uh, I, I seek your face. I seek the Lord. Well, it's what we're commanded to do all the way through Scripture. Seek the Lord. And you know the famous text, Jeremiah 29. Fundamental truth. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. David has accepted the invitation with great anticipation, right? He's seeking the Lord. He's seeking the Lord. It's what true believers do. Again, verse 9, David is praying what God has already promised to his people. God will not hide from David. God will not turn from David in anger. And God will not abandon nor forsake David. Nor you or I. Verse 10. This is a figure of speech. His, his father and mother have forsaken him. This is a figure of speech. God will not, God will not forsake his people. Verse 11 through 14. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take what? Courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So we're back to that one thing, that theme that David brought up over in verse for he has no divided allegiances. He wants God above all. He's not interested in the ways of the world. He's interested in the ways of God. David is echoing the sentiment in Psalm 119.32 where the psalmist writes, I shall run the way of your commandments 
and you will enlarge my heart. Amen. We are empowered and we are encouraged as we eat the word, as it becomes part of us. We understand how free we are, how much power we have to live above the fray. Beloved, God's called you to live above the fray and all the emotional garbage going on in your own heart, right? God has called us to live above these things, to be like the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. We run to win. We run to win. David is once again, verses 12 through 13, praying what God has already promised. Of course, the paramount promise here of God to the believer is that ultimate adversaries will be dealt with. Sin, death, and hell. If you know your Bible, you realize Christians are often martyred. Christians are often impoverished. Christians are often imprisoned. Christians are often beaten. Sometimes it goes bad for Christians in a temporal sense. But our ultimate enemy has been vanquished. Sin, death, and hell cannot have me. Cannot have me. Cannot have you. If you are in Christ tonight. Verse 13, David endured hard times. He said, I, I would have despaired apart from this hope in the goodness of God, do you have such hope? Are you invincible in the, in the face of trial? Are you invincible? Can you laugh? Can you laugh even when you must cry ultimately? Because you can't be touched. Sin, death, and hell is defeated. And beloved, that's your biggest problem. Those are your biggest problems. If you don't know that's your biggest problem, if you think something temporal is your biggest problem, you've, you're completely misinformed. You've not understood the Bible. Your biggest problem is sin, death, and hell. In Christ, those adversaries have been vanquished. So what do the people of God do when our souls are disturbed and in despair? We talked about it a little bit last week. We always go to Psalm 42. We hope in God. Remember? <laughs> Remember? Remember the text? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. Why are you in despair, O my soul? I will not succumb to despair. I will hope in God. This is what the psalmist does. David says, I will hope in the goodness of the Lord, verse 13. Well, let me just give you a couple of other psalms here. Psalm 119, 68. God, you are good and do good. David's trusting in the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 52, 1, the goodness of God endureth continually. Psalm 86, 5, for you, O Lord, are good, abundant in loving kindness. Psalm 100, verse 5, for the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 106, 1, praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. I've lived 65 years. I can tell you, God is good. 37 as a Christian, I can tell you, on the mountaintop and in the valley of the shadow of death, God is good. 
God never doesn't come. God is good. He is good. I hope you know that, beloved. I hope you own that for yourself. Romans 8, 28 is true every day. Look at verse 14. David says, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. I, like, I love to ask young people particularly, but even old people, but, you know, young people in particular, you know, would you like to do something great for God? And the answer is almost universally, I want to do something great for God. I want to do something great for God. And that's commendable, right? You want to do something great for God. Well, here's something great you can do. You can wait on God and be content and be confident and courageous. Wait on God. Don't get in front of God. Don't lay your hands on it. Don't orchestrate. Wait on God and worship God. What I want to say to you, I think this is the greatest thing a Christian can do. Okay? It's one of the greatest things a Christian can do. Wait on God with complete contentment. I've learned this as an old man. I didn't know this as a young man. Even as a Christian, I didn't know this, but I've learned this as an old man. One of the greatest things I think I have ever offered up to God is to wait on Him in complete delight and contentment. It's what David is saying. Wait on God. Oh, you, you think you're going to push providence along? You think you got what it takes to push providence along? You want to push providence along? <laughs> what a joy! Wait on El Shaddai. Wait on Yahweh. Yeah, so we don't need luck. Our confidence is in our sovereign God. Therefore, we have courage. So I exhort you to expunge the word luck from your vocabulary. If I hear you use it, I'm going to rebuke you in love, but I will rebuke you. You can't use this word in the world. You know, you're, you're kind of messing up your witness to use this word. We don't talk about luck. We talk about a sovereign God. That's who we talk about. Our God is God. He's awesome. He's our light, verse 1. He's our confidence, verse 3. He's our worship, 4 through 6. He is our courage, verse 14. Luck is nothing. Jesus Christ is the sovereign God, creator, incarnate, crucified, buried, risen, reigning, returning God. If you know Jesus Christ, you understand that that is real and it is very personal. And it informs how you think and how you act. In the world, you understand what David is saying. Jesus is your light. He is your confidence. He is your worship. He is your courage. Therefore, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? So, beloved... I give you a ton of freedom tonight. Just believe the words of God. I give you a ton of license. You are free to love God and to live huge for His glory. And when we live huge for His glory, what does that mean for us? Someone tell me. 
We live for His glory, which what? Means we are going to receive much joy. Man, this is just huge. This, is, this stuff, this is life-changing huge, right? What can man do to me? What can COVID do to me? My God is God. He is my confidence and He is my courage. I don't need your good luck. I don't need it. I don't want it. I'm not interested. It's nothing. God is my confidence. God is my courage. Let's pray together.